Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. That's me, all right. Joined by Kerry Haskell in those WZON studios in Bangor, Maine. Good to have you aboard for Downtown, the podcast. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Hey, just one guest this week on the podcast, but it was a lengthy and fun conversation we had recently with a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We've had a lot of lot of talented musicians on the show, but Carrie, <laughs> I don't know that we've ever had a guy who's been a member of so many bands and so many influential bands as Chris Hillman. Mm, yeah, the the influence that his the groups he was part of had over rock music for the last forty years is just amazing. Yeah, well, you look at his work as a founding member of the Birds, then on to the Flying Burrito Brothers. Uh, Souther Hillman Fure, and then uh, a huge run of success with the band he was with the longest, and that's the Desert Rose Band that had a bunch of hits on the country charts in, in the late 80s and early 90s. And but He's done it all through the years. We had a blast talking with him about his new memoir that looks back on all of it. It's a book called Time Between. And here's our conversation with Chris Hillman. Chris, I, I love the book. Uh, Time Between is, is such a wonderful book, and it's... Uh, I, I found it positive and uplifting and inspirational, and it's it's about you and it's about the music. Um, but I understand that that you weren't sure you wanted to do this, and, and that it was reading Linda Ronstadt's memoir that really inspired you to go through with this. Well, actually, you know, Rich, that was a big part of it. But I I had I have been working on the thing well, I almost seven years. I had finished it. You know, a few years ago, I'd finished the book, and I said to my wife, uh, we need to find an agent and, and see what's out there, if anybody's interested in, in doing and publishing it. And um, and so I, I meet Scott Bomar, who head, heads up the publishing wing of BMG, and had heard that I was doing a book and was interested. He asked if I, he could read some of it, and I sent him, you know, couple of chapters and he, he loved it and said let's do it let's we'd love to talk about publishing the book and it was very nice and very flattering he says I don't think we need a co-writer on this and I was very flattered to hear that so that was really nice but what what it did was once we had something in place as far as a real publishing deal rich I, I got down to business and uh really started looking back at the book and re-editing it. And, of course, my wife was great. She helped out in a sense of she would be – she had not read a word of that of the book until uh, we had this deal. And she starts reading it, and she says, you know, uh, on, in Chapter 5, you're talking about a, something in the session, studio, and she says, why don't you embellish that and talk about the song you were cutting? I mean, just really good ideas she had. So I did – I added those things. I, I took some things out that I didn't think were – were uh, relevant and then scott uh came up with the idea of opening the whole story with our fire with this horrible fire that we almost lost our house in december of 2000 excuse me 2017 let me get that right there we go and here's it's like it was uh um, two months right after tom petty had died it was like a really tough couple of months for me and um but Scott had the idea, Rich, of, of opening the book uh, and with that whole sequence of events where the fire takes over and then we sort of backpedaling into it. Yeah. And but, not, oh, not the and first Linda, time you had to deal with a devastating fire. That wasn't. No. <laughs> I have a great affinity for fire. I'm not <laughs> sure where that's coming from. But, gosh, when I was like four years old, three years old, I mean, our house started I mean, caught on fire. And then when I was in the birds, I lost my house. And and I'm still putting that that uh, mystery together. David Crosby was visiting me for about an hour before that fire broke out after he left. <laughs> That's my next book, Rich, is the, is the great Crosby uh, fire mystery. No, I'm kidding. But anyway, uh, uh, so um, Linda, as I was in the process of now re-going, of going through the book and, you know, just getting polishing it up and and Linda I had read her book and I I really liked it because she never denigrated anyone she was uh, only focused on the music and I and that's the exactly where I wanted to go with I sent her a note 
I said, I really loved your book. I don't, and I'm, between you and I, Rich, I don't really read those books that much, autobiographies. But I loved her book because she was just focused on the music and what she did, her the career and how she pursued something she loved. And I said, I can relate to that. That's exactly where I'm going with this. And and I did tell Scott Bomar at BMG, I said, I'm not going to hand you a a uh, rock and roll Led Zeppelin meets, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, you know, it's just not going to be there. I don't really have that interesting of a, uh, a suspicious nature there. I didn't really go into some places I shouldn't have. So <laughs> he said, I don't want that kind of book, which was nice. He said, I really don't want that. I just want you to tell your story. So, Rich, I wrote it like as if I was riding across country with you and and I, I said here's what happened I, 1963 I started playing blue you know etc so like I was talking to one person that's the way I, way I wrote the book well and that's the way it uh, reads too and I and I I really enjoyed uh, the early days of uh, you growing up in in Rancho Santa Fe and learning about uh, a peanut brittle your first horse uh, that you that you <laughs> rode and then your dad bought your ranger yeah yeah yeah, he got well. Actually, I I I earned every dime for that horse, old Ranger. But uh, he he was great. That whole I'll never forget when he in the book where I said my dad we drive home. He says go out in the corral. We didn't have any livestock down. He says go out in the corral. I left some boxes out there, and I'm going typical ten year old kid. Oh, dad. He says just go out and get the boxes for me. And there was Ranger out there. I mean, you know, wow, is that my you know like it was it was. I think Dwight Yoakam wrote such a beautiful forward to, to this mm. book and where he connects the dots of my idyllic Leave it to Beaver childhood. And it was. Rich, it was, man, it was the best, you know, 1950s. And then uh, he sort of connects the dots to the Los Angeles and then you know, early 60s. Of course, he goes into and connects with uh, references James Elroy. Are you familiar with him as a I writer? Am. Absolutely. I am too. I love his stuff. And uh I thought that was really interesting. I mean not that the not that LA in the sixties was necessarily the LA that James Elroy was writing about in the fifties, but there was a lot of that when James Elroy would always uh, write about the LA police department, they were very corrupt. And up until uh, the sixties they that's another story someone should write. Um, <laughs> they had to replace the chief that was in there. There was really bad stuff going on. Anyway, so um, that's it, yeah. Uh, you end up forming it, but... the uh, the Scottsville Squirrel Barkers, and I thought it was interesting that you know, a lot of guys came to rock and roll because uh, you know, Elvis inspired them, and it was rock and roll all along, and, and you certainly appreciated Elvis, and, and later you talk about seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, but, but you also had an interest in bluegrass and different types of music and and, and the LA scene uh, people were were playing those hoots at the troubadours uh, troubadour Correct. but you guys you were more of an ash grove fan as i understand i was rich and um it's funny it's uh, when elvis came out and i mean chuck berry that wonderful period of time 1955 i'm going to put a earmark that here and um I loved that, as we all did my age. We loved that music. It got quiet about 1959, and it got real quiet on the radio, and we had Fabian and Frankie Avalon and this and that. And uh, I gravitated into folk music because that was getting sort of popular on college campuses. And there, of course, my sister brings home some great records, and the Kingston Trio were on the on the charts with Tom Dooley. And it's funny, uh, I, I liked the Kingston Trio back then for about 20 minutes. <laughs> and then I got my head into some really more traditional mountain music. And by way of the mountain music and the string band music, uh, New Lost City Ramblers and all that it led me into bluegrass, which is a highly more polished form of string band music then. And I was probably one of two guys in, in my high school that loved that kind of music. It's very similar to how Herb Peterson grew up, who's the same age as I am. And he grew up in Berkeley, California, and he was in the same situation where he loved bluegrass. He's learning how to play the banjo, and maybe there's another guy in the high school that likes it or something, you know. But, yeah, was Bernie uh, Ledden the other guy in your high school that liked that music? Well, Bernie was... Uh, uh, Bernie's about two years behind me, and so I was out of high school, and I was in the Squirrel Barkers, and Bernie was in going to high school in San Diego, and he was already, at 16, an incredible banjo player and guitar player. And he played in the Squirrel Barkers briefly when a couple of the guys got drafted, and we had some shows 
contracted, and so Bernie uh, sat in with us. Yeah, but he and then he moved to Florida. And this is another st- interesting side story, Rich. Bernie led one of eleven brothers and sisters. They moved to Florida, Gainesville. Oh gosh, right after about 1963, and uh, he meets Tom Petty who's also learning the guitar back there and living in Gainesville. And this connection, and then Bernie, Tom Petty, Bernie's brother, Tom Ledden. Don Felder was there as well from the Eagles, right? Don was the guitar teacher. Right, he taught Tom Petty, yeah. Yeah, he was teaching Tom how to play. He was teaching Bernie, and then Tommy Ledden was Bernie's brother, who ended up playing in a band with Tom. I mean, it's very interesting how these dots connect the dots, and and then we all end up. And then, of course, I end up doing an album with Tom um, in uh, January of 2017. Bernie and I are in close contact, always uh, dear friend. And um, but yeah, I'm just there was that. Um, Bluegrass is so interesting, if, especially if you sort of went from there into country music. And I would always reference it, Rich, as I'd say, I went to bluegrass school. You really <laughs> learn the music. And and uh, it's funny because here I am, a middle-class California kid who surfed but loved bluegrass. And I end up working after the Squirrel Barkers in this band, the Golden State Boys, and then later called the Hillman. And, and uh, of course, in the book, I talk about Don Parmley, the banjo player from Kentucky, and Vernon Rex Gosden from Alabama. And they were like 10 years older than I was. But they were my, I always, I lo- I always use this term, they were my window on authenticity because here they are, the real guys from that part of the world. And I said, it's one thing. I think I told Herb, I said, uh, we were lucky. Herb worked you know, with with a couple of guys called, um, oh gosh, uh, Ray, uh, Vernon Ray, and they were from Arkansas, older guys. But Herb and I both had the experience, opportunity to work with people that came from that part of the country. So what did we learn besides the music? We learned their culture, how they spoke, what they ate, how they thought. It was really interesting. It was at a whole other level dimension to learning how to play this music, which was really not uh, a part of the California scene, really, at that point. Uh, but And there were here's the guys in, and back then that were playing bluegrass, David Lindley and Ry Cooter a little bit, right. and just very few, a few people in, in L.A. at the time, so... We're talking with uh, Chris Hillman here on downtown. When I first started in radio a hundred years ago, Vern, I was working at a country station, and Vern Gosden was uh, was making some great country records. And it was only oh, yeah. it was only later that I went back and discovered the work he had done with his brother, and, and how great they were, and how long they've been doing that kind of music. Oh, Vern was fantastic, and uh, so well deserved when he uh, got all those accolades, and he had chiseled in stone, and he had all these great songs he wrote, great singer, and highly, uh, highly respected in, in the Nashville, uh, in the music business, highly respected. And and we remained very, very good friends all, all through the years until he passed away. And he was like a big brother, Rich, if you can imagine me with a phony ID, not the one I made, <laughs> what we were making. <laughs> this fellow was talking to me the other day. He says, so your life of crime was really the f- fake IDs and, uh, oh, oh, and stealing blue jeans at the makeup. And I said, yeah, that was, my, that was about my extent of my criminal career. But Vern was my big brother, so I would be, we would be working these hillbilly clubs around L.A., out in the suburbs of L.A., and he was my big brother. He'd look after me. I was an 18-year-old skinny kid, you know, and but a wonderful man, all these guys. They were all, I, I always felt um, as sort of a subtext. I think I implied that, that mentors in our lives and people that sort of say, hey, why don't you try it this way or that, or they go this way, or and, you know, and uh, I always acknowledge that. I had so many people that were sort of guiding me along. And maybe I didn't realize it at the time, but uh, later I did. And, and, and that, and, and then um, I feel the book has, uh, it, I appreciate you saying that. It is, it is positive. I want it to be uplifting, and I wrote it that way, and about uh, lifting yourself up through any adversity. When my dad was a really good man, he was not some abusive, drunken guy beating us up. He was a good, loving, affectionate, 
hardworking, creative man. And he just lost his way uh, about 1961 and, and took his life. And, and it was so devastating for us as anybody who experiences suicide. So devastating. And you feel abandoned. And I was angry, so angry for 10, 20, 30 years and, until I finally forgave him. And um, uh, way too late in doing that, but whatever. Um, but the sub text or, or of the book is is just the redemption mm. is picking yourself up and when we found out after he died that we had no money we didn't know that and my older brother was out of the house and my older sister was out of the house and my mother sits my little sister and I down and she says we're moving to Los Angeles now normally kids that age would say we're not moving we can't leave our friends we don't want to go to a city and blah 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 no one said a word. Everybody said, okay, Mom. And everybody did what they had to do. And uh, uh, there wasn't any options, Rich. Mm. You know, we, we, need to, we need to go move. She said, I have a job. I went and got a job, as it says in the book. My sister went to school, high school. And we survived. And then when, it, when I turned 18 and the scroll barkers were beckoning, oh, did I have a love of that music. And I sat her down and said, Mom, I, I want to go down to San Diego. And she says, okay. She says, I think you'll, I think you'll be okay. I, I'm not worried about you. You'll survive. <laughs> so, she was fantastic. She didn't hang on to me and say, don't leave me. I've got, I need you here. You've got to, you know, and a uh, very strong woman. And I owe her so much. Uh, she's gone now, but I, I do owe her for keeping us all together in the family and, and being such a strong, you know, that, that old Texas stock she had actually, Oh yeah, and uh, and uh, part of her family came from Newton, Massachusetts. My great grandfather oh, nice. came from Newton, Mass, across the country by wagon, wow. train, and even the last hundred miles by uh, on a horse. I mean, it's true story. It's great, great uh, legend there. Well, Chris, a, a big turning point in your life uh, came when Jim Dickinson, uh, Jim Dixon, rather, uh, said you ought to come listen to these guys. Uh, they were called the Jet Set, David Crosby, then Jim McGuinn, Gene Clark. And then they asked you uh, a few weeks later, can you play bass? And like any aspiring <laughs> musician would say, even if you can't, you said, of course I can. Yeah, well, after I heard him sing, Rich, I mean, they really sound good. I mean, you know, Crosby was in unbelievable singer back then still is at 78 years old he's still a great singer and and McGuinn and Gene they sounded great and they were the just three guys and a couple of acoustic guitars and after having worked with Vern and Rex Gosden and I had very high standards for vocal harmonies because the Gosdens were fantastic but when I heard those three guys sing I went I told Jim Dixon I said, this is this is good. This is gonna. I, I hope this works out for everybody. And I, I have, went back and to my job uh, in the horrible group I was in, <laughs> <laughs> the Greengrass Group. That yeah, was a pretty bad one. But uh, then two weeks later, he says, uh, "Can you play the bass?" And then he proceeds to go on. He says, "David was going to be the bass player, but he doesn't want to. He, he doesn't feel comfortable." He says, "Can you play bass?" I said, "Sure, I can." I knew they were going to do something interesting, and I, I uh, marched in there. I don't know where I found this bass I got. It was $50. <laughs> Rich, I think I got it at a music store or a pawn shop, seriously. <laughs> I had never even held an electric bass. I had goofed around on a stand-up bass, but I didn't know how to play the bass. It was the four strings of a guitar, so I mean, I said, okay, I, I can handle it. So I, I go to that first rehearsal. I didn't even know these guys, and I am assuming, I think I laid it out in the book, but I might, I'll be a little more uh, focused here. I, I was assuming they had amps and drums in there and everything. I walk in, and, and there's one old amp in the corner, and Roger's... <laughs> plugged in and Gene strumming on a guitar and Mike Clark had the best rig going. He had the cardboard box, one snare drum, one cymbal. <laughs> and I went, first I looked at them and I went, this is like a Lonnie Donegan skiffle band. You know, remember <laughs> the beat, John Lennon was in a, a very similar, he was in a skiffle band right. before they started the Beatles, right? So it was very similar. It was like a jug band, folk band type deal. Anyway, we literally, I used to say this on stage, still use it, but we literally all plugged in. Uh, and and we had we weren't a garage rock band, as you know, and we plugged in and we sort of 
created a sound. We were very much into the Beatles at first, and then Gene was already writing a bunch of great songs, and Roger was writing some good ones, and it just the sound developed. Roger was really most instrumental, no pun intended, in uh, pulling the band together because he was really was had had the most experience as a, as a musician out there. Now, I was surprised yeah. to read that, that Jim Dixon was not a big fan of you guys recording Turn, Turn, Turn. Oh, isn't that funny? Yeah, he said, you, this, he, I'll never forget. He said, this might be the last number one single you have. And I said, well, <laughs> is this on philosophical grounds or what do you, he said, well, it's just too black and white. Well, I, and, and I didn't know anything then. Good Lord. I said, well, isn't that the way uh, the, the scripture reads? It's sort of like you're, you're born, you die, you plant, you reap. It is sort of black and white. But anyway, there wasn't much of an argument. We just went ahead and cut the song. I think it's probably the signature bird song over Tambourine Man. But, you know, it's a great track. I mean, and, and we played on it. The Tambourine Man, we did not play on that one. And you can tell it's pretty slick. But Turn, Turn, Turn is where we really stepped up to the plate and laid down a great song. Before I read your book, I was reading a book about Laurel Canyon and the music scene back in the 60s, and, and you were the first guy there among the musicians. As far as I remember, but then then someone says, was, was Frank Zapp up there? I said, I, think I, I said, I believe he was. I knew Frank. I didn't go to his house or anything, but he, I think he lived a, a couple streets over. Uh and there were some, you know, a lot of, uh, in the early days, there were actors and jazz musicians that lived up in the canyon because it was really about five minutes from uh, the Sunset Strip. So you just went right up from the Sunset Strip up over the hill and you're in Laurel Canyon. So it was quite an interesting uh, change of scenery because uh, it was very, uh, in a sense, sort of rural. You know, it was mm. wonderful up there, wonderful old houses and things, yeah. Uh, the band went through some changes in 67. Uh, Jim Dixon out, David Crosby out, uh, Jim McGuinn became <laughs> Roger McGuinn, and you welcome in uh, the talented but but certainly troubled Graham Parsons. How did that change the dynamic of the birds? I think Roger had said at one point, right around that time, we were ending up, we were doing the, the Notorious Bird Brothers album. And all of a sudden, it was just the two of us. Right, I mean, Mike. Mike left. We we had to let David go. It wasn't working out, and then Michael decided to quit a month or two later. But it was fine. We finished that out. It was one of our better records, and we used some really good players on there. We used Clarence White, of course, who became uh, in the Birds later. It was, we hired him later. But we had Jim Gordon playing drums, who had, of course, went on and played with Derek and the Dominoes, and, and played with Souther Hillman Fure, and then. We know where it would happen to him, mm. poor man. Anyway, um, so we finished that album, and uh, the whole thing about Graham and I meet him, and you know, and uh, he was totally, he was ambitious, focused. He was hungry. He wanted to, not literally hungry, but he he wanted to make his mark, and we hired him, and. Uh, I didn't know he had such an affinity for country music, and when I realized that at the first rehearsal, I, I said, I've got an ally. And uh, it was shortly thereafter that we started to think about doing a country album. And it was never, Rich, it was never like, we're going to make a country album and we're going to cross over and be a different type of music. Mm. It was just the birds doing a country album and still being the birds, you know, and that's what happened. Talking with Chris Hillman on Downtown the Podcast this week, and after a word from our friends at Cross Insurance, we're back to talk about one of the Birds' most influential albums, Sweetheart of the Rodeo. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Glad so swift, rain won't lift, gate won't close, railings froze, get your mind. Winter time, you ain't 
album, Sweetheart of the Rodeo. The Birds, with uh, our guest this week on the podcast, Chris Hillman. Well, Sweetheart of the Rodeo uh, was not a huge hit at the time. Now, all those years later, people look back at it as one of the, the seminal albums of the 1960s. But but I, I read that uh, well, you and Roger initially weren't even comfortable with that label of country rock. Not really, because we'd already we'd already survived the, the label folk rock. <laughs> we, we survived uh, folk rock in this order. Raga rock, psychedelic <laughs> rock, and country rock came along. And then all of a sudden, here we are, and, and it, it's all Americana. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's, it, but it, it sort of makes sense because it was really, uh, it was just a matter of somebody labeling something they were writing about. A journalist is writing about something in 1967. And, and calls it this or that or country rock or this or that. But I, I'm sort of, it doesn't bother me at all. It's funny now. I go, uh, country rock, whatever. <laughs> it, to me, it's music. But you, I guess you have to be sort of definitive in, you know, in, in describing it. Oh, the funniest thing about the birds is for us to go to Nashville and do Sweetheart of the Rodeo, it was never a stretch because we were the guys coming out of folk music, me more so with the bluegrass. I had more credential in that sense, but it wasn't a big stretch for us to do that and, and to, to uh, grab, assume the mantle and go after the country stuff. And we had already, as you know, uh, recorded a Porter Wagner song on our second album, Satisfied Mind. And so we were doing that. We were messing around with it way back in 65. <clears throat> Anyway, yeah, and I—I I, I mean, I never thought. Uh, I thought the Sweetheart album was was good. It wasn't—it wasn't my favorite Birds album, and it didn't do great business. But it did. A few years later, it went really just picked up speed, and people started really loving it. When we went out and did the 50th anniversary tour, uh, we were doing sell-out business, and it was great. Wonderful tour that was with Marty and Stuart and Roger. It was great. We're talking with Chris Hillman on Downtown. Let's talk about the Flying Burrito Brothers, uh, you and Graham, and a a talented group of musicians that that were almost instead called the Alabama Sheiks. Name if you're a blues band, <laughs> I think that's a good name. But yeah, yeah, um, yeah burritos are fun, and like I say, Graham through the sweetheart period, he was focused, and and the first burrito album when we were sharing a home together and writing every day was great. He was very, very on the on his game, and it's like Sin City, the song we we did that, finished that off in 35 minutes, thereabouts, 35, 40 minutes, and. Um, and the, the best part was that people uh, covered our songs. They covered Sin City. Dwight Yoakam did. Katie Lang Beck, Emmy Lou, of course, cut a lot of our of the burrito stuff, and uh, Steve Earle. And and uh, it's great. That the ultimate stamp of approval if somebody records one of your songs. But the first uh, year of the burritos was it was interesting. It was. <laughs> Uh, you, you, act. you play at Altamont, and we had Chip Monk on the show not too long ago. Oh, God, uh, he, <laughs> I know him. I used to, is Chip, I'm sorry, Rich, is Chip, I thought he had passed away. No, he's I'm he's living up. in Australia now and, and going strong. Oh, my God. But he said, he our, he said that was the end of it all. Everything that had everything yeah. that had gone well at Woodstock came crashing to the ground at Altamont. That's exactly right. And it was the end of the 60s of the idyllic peace and love, you know, and the, and Altamont came along and it was, that was the day it died. That was the day the sixties died. Uh, yeah, absolutely right. Uh, well, it's good to know chips around. I, I don't know why I thought he had passed away, but yeah, he was our road manager for wow. one tour, I think. Wow. <laughs> uh, you worked with Stephen Stills and Manassas and, and I got the impression from the book that, that it was good to not be in charge and just concentrate on making good music. Oh yeah. Uh, I love that band. And I had to, it kept me on my toes. Those guys were really good players. And uh, it was always interesting. Uh, the Britos had an interesting history. I went from playing Eight Miles High 
with the birds, and so you want to be a rock and roll star. Those are really good smoking tracks, and the burritos had songs, good songs, but we were so lazy in our execution. <laughs> so, and then later, at the very, about a year later, and uh, Graham is gone, and I, I put the band back together, the Brito Brothers, and uh, we had a really tight group, and uh, we, the last album we did was called Last of the Red Hot Burritos, and, and uh, it's a live album, very good record, but uh, working with Steven, I really had to be on my toes. They were such good players, and still uh, was an old friend from the Buffalo Springfield days, and he was, again, I'll use this phrase, he was at the top of his game. He was singing great. He was writing good stuff. I mean, the, the Manassas, the first record, was a double album, and it went into the top five. Uh, but it was, I loved it. I loved the music. I loved writing with stills. I learned a lot, Rich. I learned little tricks about writing songs from him, and I learned a lot of guitar. I would just watch him. i go, uh-huh, uh-huh, and I'd see how he would approach something. And uh, it was a great, great experience. And then it, was, it went it's, as long as it could. It went two years. He goes back to CSN. And, you know, through the book, I always say I, I was I was always going to uh, – register for a, the next semester in college <laughs> and a door would open and a door opened after Manassas uh, Souther Hillman Furet was presented to me as an idea and that was by David I Geffen right Ver I'm sorry yeah David Geffen yeah, yeah. and uh, I knew Richie Furet very well I didn't know JD at all but yeah it was uh, I think David Geffen's idea of uh, I'm going to make another Crosby Stills and Nash and on paper, it looked great. It was a great idea and, and good good choice of people. But we just didn't have the time to uh, develop the band as, as we could have. But gosh, you know, I keep running into people that swear by that first Souther Hillman Fury album. Love it. And so I said, good. Okay. It was a good album. You know, but the best thing that came out of that, uh, that partnership, though, was reconnecting with Connie. Yes, it was. Yes, indeed, it was. <laughs> um, that one, my, the woman who, who stepped in and steered me right 41 years ago. Been married 41 years. Wow. More. Awesome. I've been together a long time, a little longer than 41 years, been married 41 years. And all I've got, and I, what I've gotten out of that, of course, I've got two great kids that are grown and successful, and I have two grandkids from one child. And I, I mean, I wouldn't trade. My family, for any, I know this sounds very noble, but I mean it. I wouldn't trade what I have now for any hit record or fat bank account or fancy car. That doesn't mean anything. My family means a lot. That means a lot to me. And I think that's also implied in the book where I, I realize uh, things like as I grow up and, and get more comfortable in my own skin. You know, I mean, you know, a long time I was such a shy guy in the birds and uh, probably a little bit of a lack of confidence and even up and up home to the burritos for a while and then I started to reclaim all of that and learned how to sing better and all of the, all of the above. So, yeah. Well, you did that in a big way in the mid-80s uh, when you got back together with Herb Peterson and John Jorgensen and, and the, the talented group that made up the Desert mm. Rose Band, a dozen top 40 country hits, uh, a couple of number ones. Yeah. But I was surprised, you know, as somebody who was playing those records at the time, surprised to read that with all the chart success you had because of record company politics at the time, the records didn't sell as many copies as, as one might have imagined. You know, that's the... Uh... out of them. 
and it, it was like just uh, frustrating as all get out. Now, funny enough, as it happened with the Burrito Brothers, people are discovering the Desert Rose Band by hook or crook. I don't know how that's going on, but uh, there's still some records in print, but it wasn't... Uh, we had a great band. I mean, our live performances were 90 percentile. In the 90, 90th percentile, meaning we... Everybody was a pro. There was no lingering issues or baggage or anything. Everybody got up there and they played well and they sang well and and we we worked with some of the great greatest people, the nicest people of ever. Reba McIntyre, Merle Haggard, the the Oak Ridge Boys, who really got our career going and gave us a break and ha- and and had us open for them in Las Vegas, at just being nice guys, wonderful people. Uh, and, and just the, the Judds, uh, the people that we were working with back in the late 80s, so, so nice. And uh, I'll never forget Reba McIntyre, and we were the opening act, and she said, uh, and she would keep her guys around, make have, have them stay, so we got a sound check. When they were supposed to be eating dinner, they should have them stay, so we would have a sound check. And she told me, she said, I was an opening act, I remember. And you guys will always have a sound check when you if you work with me. And I went, Wow. But a nice person, and she was sweet Absolutely. as can be. Now, you're very proud of the fact, and, and it's certainly unique, that uh, when you were all inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in the early 90s, you guys and the Birds were the only band that actually sat together at the same table. I think it, I think that record holds. <laughs> we, we sat down together. We went up together. We played a couple of songs, and uh, Paul Schaefer and the uh, Letterman guy, the guys that played on Letterman, uh, backed us. And Roger and I played. Ro- uh, Roger played 12, I played bass, and then we all sang. It was great. It was a wonderful evening. And the other thing, I was just reading about, somebody I wrote a, uh, I read an article about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, how it was uh, virtual this year. It has, you know, has to be so. But how, and they were making reference to how um, really special it was before they started televising, and it was. We were in the Waldorf Astoria ballroom, and we had the rock and roll ceremony in 1991, and at that particular night was when the first Gulf War started, so they stopped the, stopped the ceremony, and President uh Bush, H.W. Bush, uh, gets on the, and starts talking about the Gulf War and Kuwait and all that. And then we resumed the event, but it was great. Loved it. it was you, quite an honor, I must say. And you've stayed close uh, with Roger and with David Crosby. And uh, David talks about it in the, the terrific documentary about him, that he's he's burned a lot of bridges uh, with old bandmates in his <laughs> life. How, have, oh, how yeah. have you been able to maintain that relationship? Because I love the guy, Rich. I, you know, uh, there's a, a, there were times David Crosby, uh, despite his uh, rather uh, uh, interesting life and the mischief he manages to conjure up every other week. Uh, I love the guy. He 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 was there for me in some very serious times. When I got sick, he was there helping me. Um, and I, you know, I I I don't. I don't think I could work with him again, but I do love him very much. I care about him. I do care about him, and I care, and I love Roger. Care about him. Uh, there won't ever be a Birds reunion, and just as well, I mean, two two principal guys are gone. Mike and Gene have passed on, and and at best we just enjoy our life at this point. You know, well, you... I, I talk to Roger every Friday. Uh, Roger and his wife live in uh, Florida, and. Connie and I, my wife and I, and a couple of other couples, we get on Skype every Friday and play Trivial Pursuits. Oh, that's wonderful. (laughs) We're very close to going to the country club, ending up in a country club playing bridge, (laughs) which is sort of a stereotype. (laughs) You know, your parents, if they were in that kind of an economic area, that they could go do those kind of things. But anyway, so we play Trivial Pursuits. Then I catch up with Roger every Friday. Uh, being three hours difference, like where you are, um, you know, so it's one thirty in the afternoon in, in California. It's, it's 3.30. What is it? 1.30? Oh, what is it? 4, it's 4.30 uh, in Florida. And uh, it's sort of funny because they're always, they're always having cocktails. And if they get a, one of the questions right, they each have a drink. 
And I said, I don't think I'm going to join you because it's 1.30 in the afternoon. So I'm going to have a drink of coffee. But it's fun. We have a lot of fun. It's it's almost silly fun. Well, you mentioned uh, your sickness, and, and what a harrowing time that was, a real brush with death in, in dealing with hepatitis. Yeah, it was something. I, I was uh, came to grips with it at one point, and uh, it, it was uh, the treatment although successful damn near killed me it just really my body was so toxic it was like uh having chemotherapy every day so uh but i made it you know within three months that virus was out of my body but because it was such a new disease this is in the 90s and um they they were he was doctor was keeping me on this therapy which was very toxic to the body. So, but I, I'm fine. I was 20, gosh, I was 20 some odd years ago, 25 years ago. Uh, we would be remiss to not mention your collaboration with Tom Petty on Biden My Time. It's such a good album. I love the title song. Thank you, Rich. Uh, love your cover. We had Sonny Curtis on the show a few months back. Love your cover of Walk Right Back that's on there. What was it like working with Tom and, and how, how very heartbreaking was it to lose him at such a young age? Um, that just fell in my lap, and so to speak. I mean, Herb was uh, hired to be a backup singer with Tom when he went out. And he did a uh, his he did the Mud Crutch tour. Was the first band he was ever in. Right. It was, uh, had Bernie's brother Tom in it. Tom led, and her, they hired Herb to do background vocals. And then they, while they're out in the road, as I wrote in the book, and start talking about an album, and Tom says, "Oh yeah," blah, 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 blah. and so when Herb gets off the road, he says, "Call Tom up." Well, I knew Tom Rich. I didn't know him that well. Roger was very, very, very good friends with him. And, but I said, okay, and I, you know, put it off. And I finally called him, and we talked it out. And it was funny. I said, you sure you want to do this? He says, do you, do you want me to? And I, well, I said, well, do you want to? And it went back and forth. I said, oh man, I'd be, I'd love to go to the studio with you. And off we went. We planned it, and we went down to his. Uh, studio that he had in the San Fernando Valley here in Cal in LA and ended up overdubbing most of the other stuff at his house. He is was a lovely, lovely guy. I got to know him so well. And I've never met a, a more humble man in my life that occupied the position he had. He was a worldwide rock star. I mean serious. But the most humble guy in the world. There was just never that. You never looked at Tom Petty and thought, well, this guy has an attitude or he's a big rock and roll guy, big ego, nothing like that. Loves music. He loved it. I, and I always loved the Heartbreakers because they would tackle anything. They'd cut anything they liked. Mm. If they heard a Bo Diddley song, they'd record it. I love that. It was total passion for the music. He had that. And when I was went to his house the first time and he says show me what a couple of the songs <laughs> i wasn't prepared i was nervous and i start playing and he says well uh oh, okay uh, is this going to be a folk album <laughs> and he was serious <laughs> I said, you know i don't know tom he says that's okay we can we can we'll just make a great record we'll call it whatever we want and uh it ends up where he really did want more drums at the end after i find that out at the end of it but he <laughs> loved the record i know that because i so many people he he knew he would show off and and play the record from, which was wonderful and uh, just a, a joy. We got that record done so fast because we were having so much fun. And so off I go, and then we um, got it done about February of 2017. Is that right, Connie? 2017, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and we got the record done. Yeah, the Biden my time, and I went out and promoted it, and and we end up in Nashville in October, and that's when I heard he had passed on the on the news. I was just I couldn't believe it, and that was such a funny day as I as you read in the book. And Crosby calls me out of the out of the blue, and says, "Hey, is uh, is that true about Petty?" I said, "I don't know." Mm. I said, "I don't know, David. I I just heard this. I I hope it isn't." And I'm going, man. And then finally, I real I find out it is true. And I go, okay, we had four more shows to do. Uh, the last one ending up in Los Angeles. So I said, I, I just, I think we're going to cancel these. We're going to move these shows and, and go home. And I was very upset. And then I get the call from Roger, out of the blue. And I told him, I said, I'm going to go home. I'm going to cancel. He says, don't do that. He said, do not do that. I said, what do you mean? He says. Tom would not like it if you were quitting or canceling shows. Go out and play and 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 play in 
praise of him. Get up there and do a do a show honoring him. And I said, you're right. You're absolutely right. So we didn't. We went out and played and uh, always uh, was for Tom every night. It was great. So, yeah, it was tough. It was really tough. And then we come home and, and uh, you know, December 4th. Uh, 2017 and and having dinner it's my birthday and there's a fire that's broken out a couple uh, two towns away from where we lived and my son-in-law is a fireman he's sitting with us at the table and he gets a text he says ah it's nothing big no no big deal uh, it's it's too far away from your house and then as we left the dinner and we go home the wind had picked up rich of a 70 mile an hour wind and it was blowing man and we get home and the power goes out and i'm propping up the garage door or anything with a broom handle just to get the car out and i we didn't realize and then finally uh we had gone to bed and then connie uh, smells smoke and we look out we goes out we look out the front door the fire had moved 30 miles north and it was the entire ridge was lit up it would look like it was a firestorm 70 mile an hour wind blowing this flames and they're, and they're blowing embers, you know, and that's what caused these houses to burn. The embers get blown into a wooden roof or a, uh, a shingle or something. You're, you're pretty much toast at that point, literally. Mm. <laughs> but, uh, uh, we evacuated, uh, we didn't lose our house. We, as I said, I, we, we lost a, a kitchen in a family room. And we were out of the house for eight months. It was just another thing, like when my dad died, where we had to pick up and go deal with it, which we did. There was no other options. You know, we weren't going to say, okay, we're done. The house burnt down. We're, we're going to go to Mars. <laughs> it's just, you know, you pick up and, you, and get things together. Thank God my wife is so uh, wonderful, and she is so organized and everything. And we're back in the house. Things are good. Uh, we have wonderful grandkids and everything, and we'll see where it all goes with the book. I, I just wanted to, I just wanted to get that book out. I was really originally writing that for my kids and my grandkids. My kids pretty much know my story, but it was just hard to leave behind for the grandkids. So whatever. But it's it's getting lots of of uh, attention, which is nice, and uh, I love it when people tell me how much they love the book. That means a lot to me. Well, it's been a a remarkable life in music, but obviously we find this out in the book, the pillars of your life are your family, Connie, the kids, uh, grandchildren, but but also your faith. How important was it for you, and and what's that done for your life to embrace that faith? It's done nothing but wonderful, wonderful things. And I'll put it this way. I I don't, I never could understand... um, uh, how a family could deal with the most egregious thing ever for anyone, especially a family, is when you lose a child. Without a Christian Judeo foundation to lean on, or anything horrible in, in your life or your family, without that to lean on, to seek solace in, uh, it's been wonderful. And I was... Uh, an evangelical Christian for a long time, and then I converted to the Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, which I just love it. It is so uh, beautiful, and, and just layers and layers of, of, of wisdom and tradition. And uh, So, yes, it has changed my life for the good. Uh, but I still trip and fall and do stupid things like everybody else. <laughs> I think the most beautiful thing about the Christian faith is the concept of forgiveness. And if we could all grasp hold of that, it'd be a nice world. And the hardest virtue is humility, is to get your hands around being a, a humble person. I don't know. That's just a part of human nature. We struggle with that, all of us. So, yeah, I, I, I've embraced uh, I've embraced my love with Christ and all, uh, but I'm not. I can safely say to you, I, I'm certainly not the uh, completely wonderful uh, guy in the world. I, I still, I, I still make mistakes like everybody else. But I, I ask God to forgive me for my. Uh, ignorance sometimes, as we all do. So, yeah, well, what, it's been what, a great thing. 
what comes through in the book is that uh, you've you've had a remarkable professional life, but your personal life has has been the key. And and it's so great to to read the book and hear the stories and and to learn about the music, but also to see that uh, here you are uh, after all these experiences, happy fulfilled, still making music, and, and able to tell this wonderful story uh, in your book, Time Between. I'm very blessed, Rich. I'm a very blessed man, and I don't take anything for granted, and uh, I appreciate it. everything that we have and everyone else has. And, and we all will get through all of this. I know that's a tired phrase, you know, this strange things in the country and all this in the world, really, but we'll get through it all. It'll, it'll resolve itself. Thank you so much, Chris. Uh, it's been a real delight. I really did love the book, and uh, it's so good to have the opportunity to talk with you today. I appreciate your call very much, Rich. It was, it was nice talking to you. You're a good interviewer. Well, thank you. Stay safe and be well. You too, buddy. A whole lot of fun talking with Chris Hillman about his lengthy career in the music business. All uh, chronicled on a, a very terrific memoir. Uh, sometimes those music memoirs, well, as we talked about with Chris, they can get a little... Oh, you know, name droppy and, and looking to stir up controversy. There, there's none of that. He's very honest about himself and his life. And, you know, even the people that he had some issues with, like the late Graham Parsons, he tries to make it a balanced and well-rounded look at those folks. Yeah, it's not a tell-all memoir. It's, no. It's showing his life in music. And I, I love him when he talked about how he's managed to remain friends with David Crosby all these years, too, which is... <laughs> Not easy for a lot of people, but as, as he pointed out, Crosby might have saved his life when he came down with hepatitis. So, mm. um, a very good book, and uh, it's called Time Between. Great conversation. So much fun talking to Chris Hillman this week on Downtown, the podcast. Thanks to you for joining us. Thanks to our friends at Cross Insurance for sponsoring, and we'll see you next time here on Downtown. Downtown.